0: my first experience of james joyce was when you had the brilliant idea of reading finnegan's wake joyce's most difficult book to us as a bedtime story when we were kids you almost instantly fell fast asleep yes it was a genius idea i must admit well you know or
1: don't you it or haven't i told you every telling has a tailing and that's the he and the she of it
2: i'm jerry jukes i'm a retired academic and i have a small distinction in my career i was one of the first irish academics to put james joyce on a degree program I'm
0: Dara Dukes, and while my father Jerry here has been reading him all his life, I'm a novice Joyce reader. We want to talk about reading as something shared. We're taking you on a tour with an artist who took what reading meant and ran so far with it that nobody has really caught him yet. To forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. We begin here in St. Stephen's Green on the way to our first stop, which was called Newman House, back in Joyce's time.
2: Newman House is named for Cardinal Newman, now saint newman it was the location of the first catholic university in ireland which was established in the middle of the 19th century and it is here that Joyce attended and took a pretty undistinguished degree in romance languages and of course the museum of literature in ireland is now located in this building the fifth chapter of the portrait of the artist as a young man tells you quite a bit about his career at university here
0: for those of you who haven't read that book it's essentially an autobiographical story and the main character stephen dedalus is james joyce he was
2: generally regarded as a bright student Uh, he didn't do terribly well in his exams but he graduated
1: i attended Klongo's and then belvedere before coming here the jesuits taught me to gather order and present my work
0: let's go up the steps and into molly then
1: my I'm fairly of my trolley.
0: The first edition of "Ulysses lives here at Molly, upstairs, and shortly we'll meet the museum director Simon O'Connor to talk about that. But let's get a little context. Joyce graduates from college here in 1902. He leaves Ireland with Nora in 1904, finishes his book of short stories, Dubliners around 1907, but he can't get it published until 1914. That's the same year he finished writing A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, his autobiographical novel, and 1914 was the year that he started writing Ulysses. So how did that process begin, and what was he at? The idea for a
2: story using somebody modelled upon Homer's Odysseus under the name Ulysses had occurred to Joyce sometime in, say, 1909, 1910. And eventually, in 1914, he began to sketch some of the ending of a novel. The thing had grown to be a novel in his mind. In 1914-15, he began the composition of the novel we now call Ulysses. Homer's Odyssey is an epic poem that is delivered to its readers in 24 successive books, What Joyce was doing was writing a novel, an episodic novel, where he was giving, as he progressed, each successive chapter, a name that in some ways parallels either a character or an incident that occurs in Homer's Odyssey. The incident might be just parodied, or it may become an armature for an event. All of the 18 episodes, as he wrote them, had Homeric titles.
1: I wrote my book based on the wanderings of Ulysses. The Odyssey, that is to say, served me as a ground plan. Only my time was recent, and all my hero's wanderings took no more than 18 hours.
0: I love the idea, I've heard a few people say that the reader has to battle all of these. Each episode brings its own challenges and attempts to kill you off almost, you know? And so if you take it on, you become the hero of the book yourself. Just like Odysseus and Ulysses and Bloom, of course. Ulysses is the book of my maturity, and I prefer my maturity
1: to my youth. In Ulysses, I have tried to see life clearly, I think, and as a whole, for Ulysses was always my hero.
3: I'm Simon O'Connor, I'm the director here at Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland, and we are in the top floor of the Alla Maxima, which is the old UCD exam hall which is the nineteenth century. Uh, assembly hall that we've converted into exhibition space here a big part of uh, this museum and the project um, and involving the national library of ireland was the library being able to display some of their most significant joyce material here in the site where joyce studied and began his writing career and um, so where we're standing is in front of copy number one of ulysses which is the first numbered copy of the print of book and Sylvia Beach the publisher uh, from Shakespeare and Company she tells us that she gave Joyce this copy um, uh, which is number copy number one and then he inscribed it with that date 2nd of February 1922 uh, to his patron um, the Englishwoman Harriet Shaw Weaver who had um, supported him financially uh, quite substantially continued to do so uh, through his life and continued to support his family as well, and even after his death in different ways. And um, Weaver uh, very generously donated this copy of Ulysses. It's arguably the most important printed copy of the novel uh, to the National Library of the Irish State uh, 30 years later in
0: 1952. OK. In terms of this actual book, this, I assume, would have been one of those that you would have had to cut the pages... It would have been one of those. It?
3: It's, that, it's that very first print run. Obviously, it's the very first numbered copy of that first print run. Um,
0: Do you know, for example, are they all uh, cut?
3: They're all cut. Yes, yeah, they're all cussed. So somebody's
0: um, set eyes on all the pages. Yeah.
3: And yeah. um, the colour, the blue colour on the front, which um, uh, for Joyce was really important, it was to reference the um, the blue of the Hellenic flag, uh, nodding to its uh, to, to to the epic poem as a um, as an influence for the novel. Um, that blue, I think, is still still remains um, pretty well preserved, and um, the binding at this stage is really quite delicate. Yes. Um, on this copy, so um, it's very very rarely opened. People often ask, "Oh, would you not open it on a different page every uh, every day?" Which Just would not survive? Uh, conservationists are terrified. Must to survive. go anywhere near yeah. it. So, and um, um, but it's snug and secure where it is here, um, presented like this, and I think. What interests people when they see it is, you know, it's a real doorstopper. It's a really physically, it's a really big, beautiful um, book. This very first edition is, uh, it's gorgeous. And when you do open it up inside, actually, it was very generous uh, size of typeface. And Joyce was someone who was he was interested in readability.
0: So, and what about the the lovely presentation of the? I guess is the work building up to the book yeah where so did this idea yeah, come from or
3: yeah so this is a sculpture and um, as you walk into this room uh, where copy number one is if you look up you see this sculpture of floating pages from Joyce's notebooks all flowing down uh, into the book and the mm-hmm. idea is that this is obviously the product of his imagination all coalescing into the final printed uh, novel but they're actually, um, a lot of these notebook pages are actually on display in the original notebooks thinking, in yeah. the room adjacent to us. Um, so they're,
0: they, they are from yeah, the original manuscripts yeah, they're and
3: so on. from the original manuscripts, and it's uh, you know it's interesting to have a look at those original notebooks as well, um, just to look at how I mean on the surface how nearly chaotic the writing process appeared, um, but also how unromantic it is. You know he's not sitting down with you know Italian bound, um, writing pads at a beautiful table, you know, composing his masterpiece. He's like scribbling away at night, uh, on the, you know, with a suitcase on his lap mm. um, while his wife was asleep in these little school of books Yes, and yes. With a pen and crayon for the colour of things. And,
0: uh, so it's. Um, it makes it yeah, more of a masterpiece, honestly, sort of holding all this stuff in memory and on pages like that. Yeah, so. I,
3: I, I think so, and it just speaks to, you know, the urgency of creative drive and the level of detail, the depth uh, at which he's going through the writing process himself. Um, And even after, uh, you know, even after the the manuscript is presented to the typesetters and the publishers, you know, uh, typescript pages come back and we have some of those inside as well. And he's editing all over those.
0: Thank you, that's great. Okay, so we're going to leave the museum and we're heading back for Stevens Green.
2: One feature outside that I'd like to bring your attention to is there's a the post box. Yes, a green post box. With the... But the, there's a logo on the outside that, that says...
0: g or g
2: okay, which stands for George's Rex. So this is a reminder that of, when Joyce attended university here... He was a citizen of Dublin City, which was the second city in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And the head of state was George George the King.
0: We will talk a little bit later about Charles Stuart Parnell, who to some Irish people was their king. But we're now coming to a place in Stephen's Green which had a great importance in Joyce's life and also in the making of the hero of Joyce's Ulysses, Mr. Leopold Bloom.
2: A curious incident occurs to Joyce somewhere on Stephen's Green. Over there, somewhere? Somewhere along there. Joyce was apparently walking with his friend, Vincent Cosgrave, and was struck by the appearance of what he thought was an unaccompanied young woman, and he approached her. Only to discover that she wasn't accompanied at some distance away by a young man who took exception to his girlfriend being approached by a stranger and apparently punched him in the face, bloodying his nose. And... The incident is remarkable because... The story goes that a man who was known to Joyce as a Mr. Alfred Hunter came to his rescue. In Dublin, it was rumoured the Good Samaritan Mr. Alfred Hunter was Jewish and it was also uh, suspected that his wife was unfaithful to him.
0: So it's not only that these characteristics are given to Mr. Leopold Bloom almost directly, but this event happens to Stephen Dedalus in Ulysses, something very similar to it. Yes, So this is an example of how real people and real events are what Joyce uses in his books. And in the case of Leopold Bloom, he comes from a number of places, not just this Mr. Hunter, but there's others, right?
2: His model was enriched, so to speak, with lots of other details from other people that Joyce knew in Trieste, in Dublin, from living in various cities. So Mr. Bloom is an amalgamation. One of the acquaintances in Trieste was a writer in Italian, a man called Etto Schmidt, published under the name of Italo Famo,
0: and he was moustached, just like Mr. Bloom is. And isn't he also from kind of Jewish background, but is a Catholic, so Bloom is given something like that as well? Bloom is the
2: son of a Roman Catholic mother, so he was baptised uh, into the Roman Catholic Church. And when he's attending high school on Hercules Street, His classmates baptize him into the Church of Ireland under a pump in the village of Swords. And then, of course, he has Jewish heritage as well. His father was a Jew. So Mr. Bloom is a very interesting Irishman. He's a Catholic, Protestant, Jewish Irishman.
1: Ulysses is son to Laertes, but he is father to Telemachus, husband to Penelope, lover of Calypso, companion in arms of the Greek warriors around Troy and King of Ithaca. He was subjected to many trials, but with wisdom and courage came through them all. He is a complete man as well. A good man.
2: Perhaps the main model for Bloom is Joyce himself. Because Bloom is given Joyce's very evident uxoriousness. He is very susceptible to the charms of women. He is monogamous,
0: but inclined to stray. One thing you find when you're reading Joyce is that you have to reach for the dictionary quite regularly... I've done that for you now, and Uxoriousness is doting upon, foolishly fond of, or affectionately submissive towards one's wife.
2: The first episode of Ulysses was initially called Telemachus, which, of course, is the name of the son of Odysseus, and in it, the central character for Joyce is Stephen Dedalus. So we have the suggestion buried in the name of the episode Telemachus, that Stephen is, in some sense, a son to a man we might meet later on,
0: who will be Ulysses. So, in this case, Bloom is Ulysses. Stephen, we already know, was Joyce in a portrait. And now, in Ulysses, Stephen and Bloom are versions of Joyce. They're two of the three main characters in the book. The third one, Molly Bloom, Leopold's wife, we will get to soon. But we're going next to the Shelburne, an almost 200-year-old historic hotel on the north of the Green. We're going up to the room where the constitution of the Irish Free State was drafted on the year Ulysses was published in 1922.
4: When they reached Stephens Green they crossed the road. Here, the noise of trams, the lights and the crowd released them from their silence.
0: It's interesting just to bear in mind all of the Joycean moments that you can see from this window.
2: Lennon and Corley approached the green, and they're walking along the side
0: of Where this bus is coming now? Yes. they
2: okay. walking along the side of the Shelburne Hotel, and cross...
4: There she is, said Corley. At the corner of Hume Street, a young woman was standing. She wore a blue dress and a white sailor hat. She stood on the curbstone, swinging a sunshade in one hand. Lenahan walked as far as the Shelburne Hotel, where he halted and waited.
2: That that street there, moving off to the is Hume Street. Corley has an assignation with a domestic servant, a girl whom he meets on the corner of Stevens Green and Hume Street. Okay, so right over there. <laughs> right over there, okay. and it's worth bearing in mind, from the point of view of the story, that location. He could have met her anywhere. Yeah. But Joyce chose the corner of that street because Hume Street was the street where the very first specialised cancer treatment hospital in the United Kingdom was opened in the late 19th century. Okay. So a contemporary reader would have immediately associated Hume Street with cancer. So there is, if you like, a symbolic connection being established between the behaviour of two gallants and a wasting disease.
0: Just to explain that Two Glances is a story from the Dubliners' short stories collection. And there's also another one that happens around here called After the Race.
4: The party was to dine together that evening at Segwan's hotel. Meanwhile, Jimmy and his friend, who was staying with them, were to go home to dress. The car steered out slowly for Grafton Street, while the two young men pushed their way through the knot of gazers. The dinner was excellent, exquisite. Seguan, Jimmy decided, had a very refined taste. The party was increased by a young Englishman.
0: So the party was in a hotel. In Jimmy's yeah. house, this dinner had been pronounced an occasion. The dinner was excellent, exquisite. Seguan, Jimmy decided, had a very refined taste. Wouldn't it be amazing, Dad, if we had just discovered that Seguan's hotel was the Shellbreaker yeah. and that we are standing in where this event occurs, not this room? But the hotel itself... Yeah, yeah. Um, certainly plausible. It's, it is indeed. It's in the exact right place. Yeah. They walk out and they walk down that direction. Yes. Towards... Grafton Street. Grafton
4: Street. The five young the men stroll along, along Stephen's green in a faint cloud of aromatic smoke. They talked loudly and gaily and their cloaks dangled from their shoulders. So
0: this gives us a chance to do a bit of detective work.
4: You
2: know, there's a part of me who always thinks that Joyce built into the book a series of rewards, so that if a reader did pay the kind of attention that Joyce requires, that they would get a payoff.
0: And, yeah, we may get a payoff or a reward here if we can find out that Seguin's Hotel is actually the Shelburne. Yes. In the meantime, seeing as we're in the Constitution Room, why don't we talk about Joyce's politics?
2: Joyce's politics is a fascinating subject, and it begins, in a sense, in his childhood, because after the death of Parnell. He was encouraged by his father to write a poem, which he did. But his father was so pleased with this that he brought it to a printer and had multiple copies of it printed and he sent one of them to the Vatican Library. To the Pope. Written about the death of Parallel. The ending, the the Christmas dinner episode that brings chapter one of A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man to conclusion. Stephen Deblis is 67 and Stephen is closely modelled upon Joyce himself. Dante, Joyce's aunt, and the other guest, Mr. Casey, a friend of John Joyce's. There is this argument over the Christmas dinner about the status of Parnell, during which Mr. Joyce becomes visibly moved, visibly upset. The last words in the chapter are given to Mr. Casey, where he bemoans the loss of Parnell, my poor dead king. In her lovely veil, where tall trees whisper. His political views came to be modified fairly comprehensively uh, during the time that he spent living in Trieste from 1905 until 1916, when he got permission to move to Zurich. His time in Trieste brought him into contact with Italian nationalism and Italian socialist politics as well.
0: I know we're hoping to get back to the Tougalands story because we're going to pass another location later on in the tour. That's key in that story. But in the meantime, maybe you might introduce our guest.
2: We are enormously privileged to have a leading joyce scholar and a former academic from Trinity College and still currently a senator in the Irish Parliament, uh, Senator David Norris, who will, will join us to offer us a reading of a segment of the Proteus chapter of Ulysses, because he is an incomparable reader of James Joyce's
0: Absolutely, text. and the very fact that we're in the Constitution Room and we have a real, live politician, we may as well celebrate that too. Indeed.
5: In long lassoes from the Cock Lake, the water flowed full, covering green and goldenly lagoons of sand rising, flowing, My ash plant will float away. I shall wait. No, they will pass on, passing, chafing against the low rocks, swirling, passing. Better get this job over quick. Listen, a four-worded wave speech. (whistles) Vehement breath of waters amid sea snakes, rearing horses, rocks. In cups of rocks it slops. Flops, lops, lap, bounded in barrels, and spent, its speech ceases. It flows, purling, widely flowing, floating foam pool, flower unfurling.
0: Beautiful. Thank you, David. The third chapter of Ulysses that you've read from is one of the ones that people find most difficult to get through. And your reading really shows how it helps so much to hear how it sounds reading aloud when you're struggling with it is a great way forward. So thank you for that. But I also wanted to ask you, now that we have you here, if you feel that reading Joyce taught you anything for your political life?
5: Well, I mean, it confirmed in me a belief that um, even if you were in conflict with uh, the majority view of society, uh, you could still act with integrity and decency
0: and so on. Fabulous. Another gift. Thank you again. We're back out on our route. Uh, We've taken a left outside the Shelburne and are making our way up Marion Row and then down to Marion Square. In realism, you are down to facts on which the world is
1: based. That sudden reality which smashes romanticism into a pulp. Nature is quite unromantic. It is we who put romance into her, which is a false attitude, an egotism, absurd, like all egotisms. In Ulysses, I tried to keep close to fact. One of the key things that Joyce seems to be aiming at in Ulysses is realism. The problem of my race is so complicated that one needs all the resources of an elastic art in order to convey it without simplification.
0: He wants to fully express the experience of living as a human and to do it through the written word. So he applies all kinds of techniques. One of these is that everything must come from real life. Every person, place and detail. I always write about Dublin because if I can
1: get to the heart of Dublin, I can get to the heart of all the cities of the world. In the particular is contained the universal.
2: Let me just give you one small little fragment that may illustrate. When Mr Bloom decides that he would like a mutton kidney for his breakfast on the morning of the 16th of June. He puts the door on the latch and he closes it after him and walks across the street to get to the sunny side.
4: He pulled the hall door too after him very quietly. More till the footleaf dropped gently over the threshold. A limp lid looked shut. He crossed to the bright side avoiding the loose cellar flap of number
2: 75. He's in number 7 and number 75 is on the other side of the street. But I went to check this sometime in the late 60s. I went to number 75, and I discovered that there was a loose cellar flap there. You could stand on it and make a a hollow metallic noise. A loose cellar flap covers a coal hole, and even in the late 60s, it it was loose. I asked myself, how did Joyce know about a loose cellar flap? And then, I, having thought about it carefully, uh, when Joyce was attending university, at Newman House, he would have walked because he lived at the time at St. Peter's Terrace and in order to get to the university on the other side of the city, the most direct way to get from Fibsborough to Stephens Green is to walk down the South Circular Road onto Eclis Street and walk along the south side of Eclis Street and at some point or other in his career going to college, he
0: must have tripped over the loose cellar flap. So a memory enters the book. One of the earliest things I remember hearing about Joyce, that sort of opened my ears to him a bit more, was you telling me that on the first page, I think, of Ulysses, where he is shaving, Maria doing the mass, and he is answered when he whistles. Yes. And the three short whistles answer him back. Two. Sorry. Two. Two short whistles answer him back. And nobody thought this had any significance until many the 70s, 60s? Uh,
2: Until Fritz Zen. Fritz, yes. Who was the director of the Joyce Museum in Zurich. And one of the greatest readers of Joyce ever.
0: Mm.
2: He clocked the time and he discovered that the time Joyce spent living in South Dublin in the Joyce Tower that uh, the mail boat left the pier and it gave two sharp blasts as a steam le- whistle as it departed soon after eight. Yeah.
4: He peered sideways up and gave a long, slow whistle of call then paused a while in rapt attention.
2: Joyce was aware of this and he gives an awareness of the fact that whistles are due to Gogarty.
4: Two strong, shrill whistles answered through the calm. Thanks, old chap," he cried briskly. "That will do nicely."
0: Another technique that Joyce used to great effect was the internal monologue, or stream of consciousness, which we will talk about a little later on. But something that may help us go back to Joycean times is if we change our mode of transport for a while. How you doing? Hi, how are you? That's exactly it. Brilliant.
5: I found. Good.
0: Great, I feel like we've gone back in time. So we're now coming up to the house where Oscar Wilde lived as a child. And the only connection between Joyce and Wilde I can really think of is Richard Alman has written uh, amazing biographies of both of them. But do you know, did Joyce have much to say about Oscar Wilde?
2: Tedlis quotes in the first chapter when Mulligan puts the mirror that he's been using while shaving up to Demon's Stephen's face. face. And Stephen dismisses the image as it's a symbol of Irish art, the cracked looking glass of a servant. And that's a quotation of Wilde. So he was fully aware of Wilde's work. Um, I think he, he admired Wilde's work. Uh, when he was running the, the English players in Zurich during the First World War, they produced an Oscar Wilde play.
0: Was he born there or he... he no,
2: no, he was born just opposite St. Andrew's Church further down. OK.
0: Yep. And then that became And home. then the
2: family... Yeah, because the father was a celebrated practitioner of medicine, an archaeologist, a folklorist. Wilde's mother was a... Speranza, the nationalistic poet. You are Irishman and you must write in your own tradition.
0: So what is the Irish literary scene coming up to 1904? Oscar Wilde is already dead... Um, Yeats.
2: The, the the principal poet alive and operative at the time was WB Yeats. And Joyce has already, in fact, been very diverted by a young emerging writer. Well, he was nine years older than Joyce himself. But he had attended In the Shadow of the Glen, as it was called. So this is John Millington Singh. Exactly. But in 1907, when the audiences at the Abbey Theatre, as it then was, objected to the Playboy of the Western World. Joyce was disturbed, amused, and jealous, because Singh had done something that was really significant. He had got on the nerves of an Irish audience with a fine piece of work, the Playboy of the Western World. Uh, Singh is the artist whose dedication and integrity is central. Joyce's conception of the artist
1: To live, to err, to fall, to triumph To recreate life out of life
4: Deishel, holes, eamos Deishel, holes, eamos Deishel, holes, eamos eamos. Send us bright one, light one one, 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 Hoarhorn, quickening, and womb fruits Send us bright one, one, light one, one, one Ho, horn, quickening and womb roots. Send us right one, light one. Ho, horn, quickening and womb roots. Hoopsa, hoopsa. Hoopsa, hoopsa. hoopsa, boy a boy, hoopsa. Hoopsa, boy a boy, hoopsa. Hoopsa, boy a boy, hoopsa.
0: Episode fourteen of Ulysses takes place at the National Maternity Hospital, Hollis Street, just up ahead here. It's an extremely challenging chapter. You've just heard the opening lines, three repeated exclamations ending with a nurse announcing the birth of a boy and bouncing him to regulate breathing. The chapter continues by taking a journey through the life of the English language, utilizing a chronology of styles to tell the story. Key to this story is the meeting properly for the first time of Bloom and Stephen. So it is a kind of climax. Stephen, and Bloom are brought
2: into alignment over the course of the book. There are a number of distant encounters where they see each other but do not speak. Until finally in a common room in the National Maternity Hospital at Hollis Street, Bloom will encounter Stephen and they will actually begin to speak.
0: So Dad, as we approach the National Maternity Hospital Hollis Street where I was born myself and where you came to see me for the first time late i believe (laughs) (laughs) going back to your own youth how did you get into joyce
2: my interest in joyce had been piqued one morning we were going to school my father dropped us to school most most mornings and my brother had a copy of doublers by james joyce which he was bringing back to the library and my father told him that he shouldn't be reading that And I thought immediately, well, if he shouldn't be reading that, it's obviously what I need to read. (laughs) So uh, when my brother brought the book back to the library, I took it out. I read Dubliners, found them mystifying and satisfying. And immediately, having finished,
0: went and uh, took out a copy of a portrait of the artist as a young man. So... A reaction to your father is what sets you on your way to a life of reading Joyce. Yes. That's amazing, really. As for those who don't know the book, Ulysses basically sets two men on a journey towards each other. Just like in Homer's epic, Telemachus searches for his father, Odysseus. In Ulysses, one man, Stephen Daedalus, has fallen out with his father and his mother has died. The other, Leopold Bloom lost his only son, Rudy, aged only 11 days, some 10 years previous. Stephen is looking for a symbolic father, and Bloom is missing a son. So in this chapter in Hollow Street, Oxen of the Sun, Stephen is drinking in the hospital mess with his medical chums. Bloom comes in to find out about Mrs. Purifoy, a woman whom he knows, who's been in labor for three days. And the drinking leaves the hospital, goes to a bar nearby. They will visit a pub on Denzel Lane. And then they go off into the next Circe chapter, right? Which is madness. A a very lengthy fantasy, which culminates eventually
2: with a private in the British Army punching Stephen in the face, just like Joyce had been punched in the face at Stephen's Green back in 1904. And Mr. Bloom will be there to assist them. The chapter will culminate with Bloom standing over the the supine Stephen. And there is an extraordinary moment where Bloom has an hallucination of his young son who died at 10 days of age.
4: Against the dark wall, the figure appears slowly, a fairy boy of 11, a changeling, kidnapped, dressed in an Eton suit with glass shoes and a little bronze helmet. Holding a book in his hand, he reads from right... To left inaudibly smiling kissing the page
2: from right to left so he's obviously reading Hebrew so Bloom is standing over Stephen and he has a vision of his son
4: Bloom wonderstruck calls inaudibly Rudy Rudy gazes on seeing into Bloom's eyes and goes on reading Kissing,
1: smiling. My father had an extraordinary affection for me. He was the silliest man I ever knew, and yet cruelly shrewd. He thought and talked of me up to his last breath. I was very fond of him always, being a sinner myself, and even liked his faults. Hundreds of pages and scores of characters in my books come from him. His dry, or rather wet wit, and his expression of face convulsed me often with laughter. I got from him his portraits, a waistcoat, a good tenor voice, and an extravagant licentious disposition, out of which, however, the greater part of any talent I have springs. But apart from these, something else I can't
0: define. We have walked down Cumberland Street and taken a left turn into the back lane of St. Andrew's Church, and just like Mr. Bloom does in episode five of Ulysses, The Lotus Eaters, we're going inside. The topic of discussion is Joyce's epiphanies.
2: We need to talk briefly about Joyce's methodology, the way he developed his works. And of course it changes over time. But one of the things that he did was he kept a notebook in which he recorded what he called epiphanies. An epiphany is a sudden showing forth of reality. And what Joyce was doing was recording in a notebook Moments that he either witnessed or remembered or composed where a reality that is not immediately visible is unmasked, so to speak, and it bursts forth.
4: A girl stood before him in midstream, alone and still, gazing out to sea. Her long, slender, bare legs were delicate as the cranes and pure.
2: In the climactic chapter, chapter four of Portrait of the Arts as a young man, Stephen Dedalus experiences an epiphany on Dollyman Strand when he sees this girl, like an angel, uh, wading in the water. To To live, live,
4: to to err, to to fall, to triumph, triumph, to to recreate recreate life life out of life a wild angel appeared to him, the angel of mortal youth and beauty, an envoy from the fair courts of life to throw open before him in an instant of ecstasy the the gates gates of all all the ways ways of error error and and glory. glory. On On and on 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 and on on and on.
2: And it becomes an ecstatic moment and what's manifest there is Stephen's destiny, is to record the beauty of the world the whole world and to celebrate it.
0: Leaving by the main door on Westland Row, Mr Bloom heads left up the street to Sweeney's Chemist where he will order something for Molly and buy a bar of soap as he will, at the end of episode 5, take a bath at the public baths around the corner there. We're taking that same route to Sweeney's which remains open as a James Joyce visitor centre and is apparently the only intact Victorian shop interior left in Dublin. But Joyce takes the opportunity to highlight the anti-Semitism that he sees in the world in a really creative way after Bloom gets his soap. Hello. Can I buy a bar of the lemon soap?
2: As he comes out of Sweeney Druggist, He's already purchased a copy of the Freeman's Journal and he has it rolled up and he's walking along in this, enjoying the sunshine, tapping his leg with it when he's approached by a man whom he knows vaguely, who asks him, is it the paper? And he, it is, and he's the man asks to see it.
4: Hello, Blue. What's the best news? Is that today's?
2: Show some minute. He wants to check something in the paper. I want to see about that French horse that's running
4: today. Where
2: the and Bloom oh, where hands is it to him, the expecting the you know th- that he's finished with it. He's scanned the headlines and so on. But the man takes it and he's checking, and eventually Bloom says, "Keep it. I was just about to throw it away."
4: What's
2: that? Throw I'll away. Risk I'll risk it. Yeah. And he gives Bloom the paper back and disappears. It's a tiny little moment. Throw away is the word that he says. We learn much later in the in the book that in fact a horse called Throwaway a rank outsider in the gold cup race, comes in at 11 to 1, and (laughs) the man who had risked it is dissuaded from putting his money on the horse. Bloom is completely oblivious to what the man is talking about. He has no interest in betting. It's simply a moment in the book that's quite mysterious. But then, in the Cyclops episode, that man... Is in a bar into which Mr. Bloom will arrive after a couple of minutes. And he's bemoaning the fact that he was dissuaded from putting his bet on that horse, the throwaway, because he'd been told by Blazes Boylan, of all people, the throwaway had no chance of winning. And he put his money on Sceptre, which was the favourite. And of course, it came fourth or fifth or something. But he suspects that Bloom is the only man in Dublin who had money on throwaway because he used the word throwaway. And word goes around the pub like lightning that Bloom has been off collecting his winnings. And Bloom is, without his knowledge, suspected of being flush with money when he comes in the pub and he doesn't buy
4: anybody a drink.
2: (laughs) So he is immediately, well, they all remember then that he's Jewish.
4: Oh, and that awful deep down torrent. Oh, and the sea. They see crimson sometimes, like fire and the glorious sunsets and the fig trees in the Alameda Gardens.
0: So where do you think the stream of consciousness technique comes from? Or where does it start with Joyce? You should recall the opening sentence
2: of the last story in Governor's The Dead. The first sentence reads, Lily, the caretaker's daughter, was literally run off her feet. But there is a great problem with the sentence as written, and it is this. The word literally is literally out of place. If we read it as literal, then we must accept that Lily is walking or running about on her stumps, her feet being missing. Such a reading is absurd, so we must adopt a different reading. To be literally run off one's feet is a common cliche and is allowed or tolerated in speech so you're forced to accept that joyce's sentence is more than a simple declarative it allows
0: us access to the feelings or experience or the speech of the subject so by moving the text through different narrators the reader gets access to these other points of view yes so joyce develops this through writing the poetry and by the time he's writing ulysses he's
2: let's say to start with that there are three characters in ulysses to whom we have access. Mm -hmm. Stephen Dedalus in the first three chapters, Mr. Bloom through almost the rest of the novel, and then to Molly Bloom in the final section. And it's interesting that the Molly character, all of her episode is in a stream of consciousness in interior monologue. Whereas Stephen and Bloom, their parts of the book are mixed between narrators, recollections, stream of consciousness, The interesting thing about all three of them is that each of the three characters is given his or her own idiolect. In other words, when you get used to reading Bloom, you cannot mix him up with anybody else because Mr. Bloom thinks in a particular kind of way, similarly with Stephen. And, of course, then there's Molly Bloom. There's only the one access we have to, except for a very brief appearance in Calypso. My dearest Nora,
1: How little words are necessary between us. We seem to know each other, though we say nothing almost for hours. I often wonder, do you realise thoroughly what you are about to do?
4: Oh, and the sea. The sea crimson sometimes, like fire. And the glorious sunsets. And the fig trees in the Alameda Gardens.
1: I think so little of myself when I am with you that I often doubt if you do
4: realise... And all the queer little streets. And the pink and blue and yellow houses. The mere recollection of you empowers me with some kind of dulls. And the rose gardens, and the jessamine, and the geraniums and cactuses. In a way, it seems to me a pity that we do not say more to each other, and yet I know how futile it is. And Gibraltar, as the girl, where I was a flower of the mountain. For, myself, for I know that when I meet yes. next, our lips will become... Neat. When I put a rose in my hair like the Andalusian and girls used. you been to babble in these letters Or shall I wear a red? And yet why should I be yes. the of words? And how he kissed me under the marsh Why should I not call you what in my heart I continually call you? And then I asked him with my
1: eyes to ask again. What is it that prevents me unless it yes. be that no word is tender
4: enough to be yes. your name? To say, yes, my mountain flower. And first I put my arms around him, yes. And drew him down to me. To golden Yes, I said yes. I will. Yes. Happy love is come
1: to. You.
2: towards the top of the gable you'll see a sign there quite faded now written on it you'll see the legend finn's hotel now that is a particularly interesting joycean spot because it was there that nora barnacle worked when she came to dublin and it was on nassau street that james joyce first encountered nora barnacle and he memorialized the day of their first serious encounter, which took place on the 16th of June, 1904. So that's the date upon which Ulysses is set. She was a barmaid and a waitress and possibly even a chambermaid in the hotel. They had, I think you'd call it a whirlwind romance. They corresponded quite voluminously, actually, because there were, of course, no telephones at the time, but the postal system in Dublin was absolutely fantastic. You could write a letter at night and post it, say, before 4 o'clock in the morning, and it would be delivered in the city by 9 o'clock on that very morning. I envy anyone who writes in French,
1: not so much because I envy the resources of that language, whose function I find to be, for the most part, a standard of moderation and criticism rather than one of innovation. But an account of the public, to which one can appeal, Writing in English is the most ingenious torture ever devised for sins committed in previous lives. The English reading public explains the reason why.
2: Right on the corner is located now the Alliance Francaise, but in Joyce's day it was the Kildare Street Club, which was a rather exclusive gentleman's club.
4: They walked along Nassau Street and then turned into Kildare Street. Not far from the porch of the club, a harpist stood in the roadway, playing to a little ring of listeners. He plucked at the wires heedlessly, glancing quickly from time to time at the face of each newcomer. And from time to time, wearily also, at the sky. His harp, too, heedless that her coverings had fallen about her knees, seemed weary alike of the eyes of strangers and of her master's hands. One hand played in the bass the melody of silence.
0: This is the two-gallant story from Dubliners again that we spoke about back in the Shelburne. The scene depicts the symbol of Ireland, the harp, being violated outside a largely Protestant gentlemen's club. Joyce's politics, there for all to see.
4: The two young men walked up the street without speaking, the mournful music following them.
0: Episode eight of Ulysses, Lestragonians, ends here. Mr. Bloom is going to the National Library on our left, but he sees Blazes Boylan, the man having an affair with Molly, his wife coming up the street as we just have and Bloom changes course and ducks into the museum next door there. We're therefore traveling the episode in reverse, going where Mr. Bloom has just come from. The episode takes place at lunchtime between one and two o'clock. There is much talk of food and it opens like this.
4: Pineapple rock, lemon plant, butterscotch, a sugar sticky girl shoveling scoopfuls of creams for a Christian brother some school treat.
1: Among other things, my book is the epic of the human body, where it lives in and moves through space, and is the home of a full human personality. The words I write are adapted to express first one of its functions, then another. In Estragonian's, the stomach dominates. And the rhythm of the episode is that of the peristaltic movement.
4: Perfume of embraces, all him assailed, with hungered flesh.
1: Perfume of embraces all him assailed. With hungered flesh obscurely, he mutely craved to adore. Walking towards his lunch, my hero, Leopold Bloom, thinks of his wife and says to himself, Molly's legs are out of plum. At another time of day, he might have expressed the same thought without any underthought of food. But I want the reader to understand always through suggestion rather than... Direct statement.
4: Grafton Street, gay with housed awnings, lured his senses. Muslim prints, silk dames and dowagers, jingle of harnesses, hoof thuds low-ringing in the baking causeway. Molly looks out of plumb. He passed, dallying the windows of Brown Thomas, silk mercers. Cascades of ribbons.
0: There's a particular passage in this episode that highlights another technique that Joyce used. He had notebooks in
2: which he wrote down phrases and single words. And as he composed his novel Ulysses, and as some of these recorded phrases and words were used, he crossed them out. Flesh to a door craved a sail.
4: A warm human plumpness settled down in his brain. His brain yielded, perfume of embraces, all him assailed. With hungered flesh, obscurely, he mutely craved to adore. The interesting thing is,
0: is that Joyce already had the words. Joyce apparently spent an entire day with this list of words, trying to get them in the right order, to do what he wanted them to do.
2: What had delayed him, so to speak, was finding the absolute correct sequence for the words.
4: With hungered flesh.
2: When you look at those words and that arrangement of those words, you realise that most of the canons of English syntax, of English grammar, have been breached in the interest of making music and in the interests of making a different kind of communication. Because the words in that arrangement allow us access to Mr Bloom's mind in a way that is most unusual. With hungered flesh obscurely, he mutely crave to adore even the adverbs are in the wrong places but they're in precisely the right musical places for these words
1: Perfume of
2: embraces all him again we're being taught how to read or to read in a way that is not just consuming text genitori,
4: genitori rockets sprang and bang shot blind blank and oh then the roman candle burst and it was like a sigh of oh and everyone cried oh oh in raptures and it gushed out of it a stream of rain gold hair threads and they shed and oh they were all green stars falling with golden, oh, so lovely, oh, soft, sweet, soft.
0: Reading Ulysses, you find that nothing from the lived human experience is hidden. There are unexpected climaxes, and we are invited to witness all kinds of intimacies.
4: instigation both, for Stephen then Bloom, in Penumbra urinated, their sides contiguous, their organs of micturition reciprocally rendered...
2: This is the moment from Ithaca, the second last episode in Ulysses. The characters are in the back garden or yard of Mr. Bloom's rented house on Eccles Street in the north of central Dublin. In Joyce's book most habitual or necessary human acts are performed and described. Such frank and honest description is highly unusual in English literature and contributed hugely to the general perception that Joyce was, quote, a dirty writer, unquote. What early readers and senses failed to notice is that within a few paragraphs of the joint urination, the two men adjust their clothing. Their gaze travels to the sky, where they see the heaven tree of stars hung with humid night-blue fruit. That's the measure of Joyce's capacities with language. He can go from the depths of obscenity to the most glorious poetry within a few paragraphs. And that's why he is utterly rewarding as a writer. So, that's terrific. Thanks for that confirmation. That's brilliant. Thanks a million. Okay, take care. So, uh, Seguin's dinner is the Shelburne Hotel, without a doubt. It is. Oh, great. Brilliant.
0: And we're we'll on our way there. Perfect. So what if James Joyce had found himself in his native Dublin in 1922? What would he have done to celebrate the publication of his great book? Gary Hughes, the head chef at the Shelburne, has been researching the hotel's menus from 100 years ago.
2: There's two menus there now from 1922. Wow. They have some magnums of beef uh, teakot to start and then they had oysters or a selection of hors d'oeuvres. Cocknakee soup as a consomme or thick consomme soup.
3: So there's your choice. Yeah. So then you had uh, sole von Blanc, so sole and white wine By all
0: accounts, Joyce liked good restaurants, but ate very little and preferred to drink wine and take in the atmosphere. Though apparently he did enjoy eating oysters, so we have managed to get a table down in the saddle room for oysters and white wine to celebrate 100 years of Ulysses.
2: Let's raise a glass and celebrate the joy, the challenge, the bounteous rewards, the fun, the complexity, the dedicated and strict artistry, the plenitude of life and experience of the young, the not-so-young and ever-living artist buried beyond in Zurich. Beautifully put. Slainter. Cheers. Slainter.
0: for you tonight guys this one might take a while river run past even adams from swerve of shore to bend of bay brings us by a commodious vices of recirculation back to Hoth castle and environs Sir tristram viola de mores over the short sea a passing corps re-arrived from north to this Sauntering with Ulysses was presented by Gerry and Dara Jukes. The producer was Cleona Jukes, and the sound design was by Dara jukes a family affair if ever there was one. The actors were Denise McCormack and Marty Ray and the programme makers would like to acknowledge the generous support of Dublin City Council Arts Office and the Shelburne. There's a dedicated website, sauntering.ie, where you can hear that programme again and you can also consult a map of the journey that they took. The programme is also available from the Lyric Feature podcast feed. There are numerous Ulysses-related programmes and other resources on the RTE Culture website at rte.ie forward slash culture forward slash Ulysses.